From Nevada Public Radio, I'm Joe Shaneman. It's State of Nevada. State and federal officials are making a huge push for renewable development. They see it as a key to combating the negative effects of climate change. And nowhere is this more apparent than in Nevada, where the Inflation Reduction Act is encouraging a boom in lithium, solar, and geothermal projects. The Department of Energy has tracked $10.5 billion of new battery and electric vehicle supply chain investment in Nevada since President Biden took office. But is there a downside to this? What if all that renewable development itself has a negative impact? And does it undermine the hope-for benefits for climate change? Questions like these are at the heart of work being done by Sophia Borges of Boise State University and Meg Mills-Novoa of UC Berkeley. They study the impact of renewable development on people and the environment, and their current work focuses on Nevada. Nevada Public Radio's Heidi Kaiser talked to them about it recently. Meg and Sophia, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having us. I want to talk about your work in Nevada on energy transition and water scarcity. But first, you two are located in Berkeley in Boise. Sophia, why the interest in Nevada and the Great Basin? So I've been working in the Great Basin since about 2016. Uh, My work focuses on conflicts over large rural to urban water transfers, which we've seen a number of in the Great Basin region. That started with some work in rural Eastern California on the ongoing conflicts over the Los Angeles aqueduct and then transitioned into uh, research about the unlikely alliances that formed in opposition to the proposed pipeline to Las Vegas um, that was successfully defeated several years ago. And it was really through research with those communities that I started to hear about not only these ongoing issues of rural urban water conflicts, but also this new layer of this wave of energy transition projects that in many ways are kind of compounding and adding in on top of those longstanding water issues that I've been studying in the region. And Meg and I were both involved in an event uh, back in 2022 called the Great Basin Water Justice Summit, where we facilitated a workshop about this intersection of water justice and climate justice issues. Um, And that's where we really started to hear about these growing concerns and challenges surrounding energy transitions and their implications for water justice. Um, And so even though we both work outside of this region, we have kind of longstanding relationships in this area um, and a lot of interest in delving into these issues that have been of major concern to the communities that we work with in that in that region. And Meg, how about you? Same thing? You know, I think my origin in this project is a bit different than Sophia. I I worked on climate change politics now for close to 15 years and living in California, you know, in 2022, Governor Gavin Newsom really stated that California would be getting all of its energy from zero carbon sources by 2045. And as a researcher, I thought, well, where's all that low carbon energy going to be coming from? And who will be the winners and losers in that? And so that brought me to Nevada, um, which is really going to be sort of the front lines of the green transition or this sort of push for low carbon energy. And a lot of that energy is coming to California and is part of that Gavin Newsom's uh, declaration. So that was really kind of, I think, what sparked my interest in this. And Sophie and I have worked together on different questions of water justice for many years. And so she had really fantastic relationships in the Great Basin. And together, I think we bring together both a commitment to climate justice as well as water justice and the work that we're doing. And so that's what brought me to Nevada. Meg, you mentioned that Nevada is on the front line of this transition to green energy. What do you mean by that? Nevada is an absolute hotspot for green transition development right now. And and that's because of a few reasons. 
One is because it's over 80% public land. So that really sort of eases the pathway to the development of this, particularly when it's a priority of the federal government. Um, also, Nevada, just by nature of its resources, it has known occurrences of 21 critical minerals, which has, you know, has now kind of countless exploration claims, um, as well as different projects that have advanced to permitting and, and development. Um, it also has around 65 geothermal plants that have been leased or are under development. It has tens of thousands, if not millions of acres of proposed utility scale solar, and it has a growing number of pump storage projects. And also, I think importantly, you know, Nevada is also the most water scarce state in the region. So this is a region that's prime for big green transition development, and also already has a lot of longstanding water conflicts. And so these are just some of, you know, the things that are colliding in the context of the green transition. And I think it's also important to say Nevada has also been seen in many ways as sort of an empty wasteland, a place that, you know, is open for the taking and ready to be developed. And so you see some of that also being thought about in the context of the green transition that Nevada is available for us to put big solar farms all over it. There's nothing there when, of course, we know that's not the case. All right. I want to get to the study now. I believe it was in July 2023. You spent around two weeks traveling all around the Great Basin, mostly in Nevada, but also in Eastern California. And you went to several spots in Nevada looking at places where the push to transition the U.S. to renewable energy intersects with water use. First of all, I just want to touch on what were some of the places that you went to in Nevada? So we did a loop around Nevada starting in Reno um, and making our way south to Fish Lake Valley northeast through Railroad Valley to Ely, and then west through Diamond Valley and Dixie Valley and back to Reno. And in each of those places, we were looking at various different forms of renewable energy development and critical mineral mining development, and really with an eye toward these sites that have not been getting as much attention in the media as others in the region, like Thacker Pass. But these sites really shed important, they shed light on important dynamics of how the energy transition is unfolding in these water scarce region with really important uh, implications for rural livelihoods, indigenous rights, um, and biodiversity in the region. What were a few of those sites you went to? One of the sites that really stood out was the Fish Lake Valley area. Um, so in this one valley in western Nevada, you have exploratory drilling for geothermal energy development, as well as proposals for multiple different forms of lithium mining. You've got open pit hard rock lithium mining up in the mountains with the Rhyolite Ridge uh, Lithium Boron Project. And then you also have dozens, if not hundreds of claims uh, from any one spot you stand on the kind of alkali playa there in the valley floor. You can see all these stakes that have been placed on the, on the playa to state claims to direct lithium extraction from brine from the alkali playa there. Um, and all of this is happening in an over-appropriated basin, so a place where the state has allocated water rights to more water than is recharged into the basin each year. Um, it's also a place with delicate spring systems, endemic species that are found nowhere else, um, and areas of cultural significance to the Timbisha Shoshone people. Um, so it's a place that really highlights the potential cumulative impacts of multiple types of projects, um, even just at the exploratory phase um, as new roads are being built and drilling is happening with, with very little oversight. Um, and it also shows how this or the efforts to address the climate crisis can collide with the biodiversity crisis and longstanding issues of environmental justice uh, faced by indigenous peoples and rural communities. And so water is really at the center of all of that. 
um, and offers us a lens to consider the challenges of addressing one of those uh, crises without uh, exacerbating another. For anyone who might not understand the process, how does, say, lithium extraction or even a like a solar development, how do these things use water? If, you know, you're talking about the water in that area already being allocated and this renewable energy development exacerbating it, how does it do that? Yeah, this is Meg. The intersection between water and different renewable energies really depends on the particular technology. So in the case of lithium that's being extracted with brines, which is what you see in Clayton Valley, which is the U.S.'s only lithium mine that's currently in existence and is in Nevada. Um, you know, they're bringing up that brine that has lithium in suspension in this water, and then they evaporate off that water to get to that mineral, and then they're able to process it. And man, so there you have a real direct and very water consumptive process of evaporating off just tons and tons of groundwater to get at that lithium. Now, um, Sophia mentioned that there's direct lithium extraction, which is a newer technology that's, you know, it's at the cutting edge, but it's still kind of unproven that would change that so that it's much more of a selective process of bringing up the groundwater, selectively taking out lithium and then re-injecting it. But again, this is sort of at the cutting edge and it's unclear the extent to which it can be done at scale. Now, in terms of um, solar, you know, solar development doesn't have as large of an impact on water as uh, lithium extraction or many kind of critical mineral mining extraction operations would have. But in the construction phase in particular, you do see quite a bit of water needed to do dust mitigation during construction. And what's really important here is that a lot of the projected solar development is really being proposed in areas with really high levels of water scarcity, like the Prump area, which has a already sort of a groundwater crisis going on. And so even though it doesn't necessarily require a lot to operate, even those water needs during construction in these really water scarce regions can have a really negative impact. The other projects that we're looking at are also geothermal projects, which are using that kind of hot water from under the Earth's crust, bringing that hot water up, using it to generate electricity, and then in some cases, um, re-injecting it. Um, so that has, you know, that does use some amount of water, but importantly, I think for those particular projects, they're often co-located with really important endemic ecosystems that rely on particular water temperatures for really precious, you know, biodiversity. Um, we have a lot of endangered species that are centered around these hot springs. And so geothermal may not actually be a, as big of a consumptive user of water, but it does degrade the temperature and quality of water, which in turn can affect um, this really important endemic biodiversity in Nevada. And then the last project I'll mention is pump storage, which is lesser known, which is basically where you have two bodies of water, one uphill from the other. And you're using during the day when you're producing solar electricity, um, when the sun's out, or you know you can also use any electricity, but hopefully it's renewable. <laughs> you pump that water uphill from that bottom reservoir or body of water up to that upper one. And then at night, when we're not producing solar, you're able to run that water downhill in order to create electricity during those sort of times when we don't have renewables. So it we, works in the same way as a peaker plant would, if anyone's heard of that phrase. So um, the issue there with pump storage is that we have two really large bodies of water with water evaporating off of them while we're sort of running this system, which functions essentially as a battery. So that also, you know, there's big questions about where does the water come from, how much of that water use is consumptive. All of those types of questions are on the table when we talk about pump storage. And Meg, are there pumped storage projects proposed in Nevada? I thought they were only in California. 
There are pump storage projects across the Great Basin and in Nevada. So one that we're looking at in this project is White Pine Pump Storage, which is near Ely, Nevada. And so that is a project that's in the permitting stages, and um, it definitely is of major concern to local people. And I want to come back to the variety of different people and stakeholders in these areas that you spoke to during your trip, which were, you know, local residents, ranchers, indigenous leaders, environmentalists, a whole bunch of different people. Do you have a, a number for how many total people you interviewed? We met with, I think, around 25, between 25 and 30 individuals while we were on this trip. But this was really just the beginning of this project, right? The idea was to talk with a handful of people in each of these sites to get a sense of the issues and get a sense of what they would be interested in seeing from research. And we'd be really scaling up that number of how many people we'd be talking to um, with this ongoing research. We're kind of pivoting now to take what we learned from that initial phase of research to build a much larger project where we would be talking with, you know, 25 to 30 people in each of these sites in which kind of shed light on different types of projects in different contexts. So that, that was just kind of the starting point for a much larger set of conversations that we hope to have around these issues. And did you also speak with anyone from the renewable development industry? We did not at this stage, but we certainly intend to do so with this with the kind of next phase of this project. Um, it's really important for us to hear all of the perspectives um, on this important transition that's happening in this region. But we started with kind of the on the ground local communities, um, since that's where we had some initial relationships already built and also wanted to kind of start from that community based perspective and then build outward to understand the bigger context of the energy transition in the region. So let's talk about your findings then. I know you just mentioned that you're planning to do a larger scale, more in-depth analysis, uh, but have you sort of started to draw any overarching conclusions or maybe formulate some hypotheses about what's going on here, big picture? Yeah, this is Meg. I think our initial findings from this research is just the extent and the pace of how this transition is unfolding. And the kinds of concerns that are raised from very different stakeholders across Nevada and across the Great Basin. In our initial conversations, what we really heard was a lot of folks being really concerned about the pace outstripping thoughtfulness about how this all occurs. And so for us as researchers, this really is, as Sophia said, the just beginning of a long process of engagement. And so for us, the most important findings that we had in this initial trip is how can our research be useful in folks on the front lines of these changes and trying to think about what a just transition means. I think at this point, we don't have all these fancy figures and polished findings, but really for us, we got a sense of, okay, how can we build a research program that serves the needs of those folks on the front lines? And what are tools that can be of use to them? And so based on what we've heard, we really have been trying to build funding applications and proposals that would really build a project that would be directly supporting those on the front lines of the green transition. Supporting them in what way? Who would use this research and, and what would they be doing with it? So I think uh, this is Meg again. One of the big things that we heard on the ground about what people need is just information. And also, there's a lot of focus on projects by projects. I have this project going on in my backyard. I'm worried about this particular pump storage site or this particular solar project. But a lot of these communities are experiencing multiple projects all over at the same time. And so what One Big Call was really thinking about how we can make sure that information is getting out to people who are interested in what's going on in their community. 
that kind of information we envision being presented in a number of ways. One is an actual and interactive online map where people are able to look at the types of proposed projects from across different green transition types of projects, being able to actually see where they're happening, what state they're in, and being able to get information. Also creating a repository of permitting and regulatory documents that people are able to access so they understand how they can make comments on the projects that they are concerned about, how they can participate in the public process. We also um, heard a lot of desires for there to be much more dialogue and conversation between actors within the region. So how can we support folks who wanna be in coalitions? And it's important for us to say that we're not just interested in supporting folks who wanna fight these projects and stop them. We also are really working with communities who are trying to figure out how do we negotiate benefits for our local community in the context of these projects? How do we understand how different communities have thought about benefit sharing in the context of these projects? How have they thought about where are no-go zones and where are zones that are okay to develop these types of projects. And so we're really trying to think about how we can also build a regional coalition as part of the way that we can help sort of as researchers facilitate this dialogue. Is there an argument to be made that the negative impacts you're describing on these these areas, these communities, or, or these, you know, this biodiversity is somehow worth it in the grand scheme of things that we may deplete the resources of one of these remote areas, but if it's for the greater good of switching to renewable energy, which could save the whole planet from climate change, then maybe it's a sacrifice we should make. This is Meg. I mean, this is a fundamental tension uh, for us as scholars and us as people who care about the world that we and our children are going to live in, is how do we balance the absolute urgent imperative of responding to climate change while also not sacrificing the same communities who've been asked to sacrifice so much for us to decarbonize. So this is really about thinking about who shares the burden for decarbonization. Who needs to, and not only who needs to, but also what species need to, what places need to, what places are sort of okay to sacrifice for the green transition and which ones are not. And so I think for us, you know, as researchers, our role is not to say, you know, all decarbonization is good and it's all worth the price. And our job is not to say, hey, the price is too high in all of these places and we can't have decarbonization. Our place as researchers is to say, this is complicated and this requires for us to have conversations with people who are affected, to talk about, okay, if we're going to put forward large renewable energies in the backyards of these communities, how do we balance that with some of the other needs out there? And so that's really, for me, kind of the point of this research is to just acknowledge that complexity instead of bulldozing it in the name of climate change. What were some of the stories you heard, or maybe a story that you heard while you were doing this research that really stuck with you and sort of explains the value of these places? Yeah, there's a couple that really stand out in my mind. One is to go back to Fish Lake Valley. It was... um, driving around that area and looking at the development that's happening from geothermal and lithium mining exploration um, and driving around with um, Patrick Donnelly from the Center for Biological Diversity and hearing about the kind of race that they're doing to protect certain species in that area while this development is unfolding at the same time, right? So it's like this, they're filing petitions to protect certain species that are endemic to that area. They're only found in that, in that one place. Um, at the same time that these new roads are being put in and new drilling is being put into place. And just the kind of urgency on both fronts of, um, you know, can we can we pause to see what is in these places 
long enough to do something about it before the development moves forward, right? Or is it just going to move forward so quickly that before we can even list these species, they're impacted and potentially even gone? So that's one that stands out to me. Um, another is in the Dixie Valley area where you have these really um, beautiful and delicate spring systems that are um, sacred to the Fallon Paiute Shoshone people um, and are also home to an endemic species of toad. And just next door um, in Jordan Valley, there's a, a site of, so I should say in, in Dixie Valley, there's proposed geothermal developments um, that could have impacts on this spring system that is um, sacred to the Fallon Paiute Shoshone and, um, and home to the toad species. Um, just next door, there's a site of a geothermal uh, plant that did dry up a spring right next to it. And so it was just really put into stark, um, um, just really made it so clear what the impacts can be of these projects when, you know, the companies are saying there's not going to be impacts, but we have seen evidence that there can be um, um, pretty severe impacts to these springs, which are little oases in this desert, right? They're home to so many species that really can't exist elsewhere um, within this really water scarce region. Um, and so it was some of those, those, those stories really stood out to me in particular um, as we traveled through this region where we heard, we heard so many. Another story that stands out is when we were in the Ely area, looking at um, the proposed pump storage hydropower project in that area. And we got the chance to ride around in the pickup of a sheep herder um, who has property in that area and runs his sheep on, in the mountains there. Um, and he was really concerned about the way that the company that was proposing this project was moving forward without even consulting with the local property owners um, or checking to see uh, if they could have access across private property to get to their project site. Um, and so it really, that, that one, that experience really drove home you know, the disconnect that sometimes happens between the drive for these projects and the local communities where there's very little um, consideration or dialogue among among the two in ways that create tensions um, that then stick with that whole process of trying to uh, develop those projects, you know, that leaves a bad taste in the, in the mouths of local communities. Um, and it was interesting in that area as well that we saw that some of these same folks that had been really involved in fighting the Las Vegas water pipeline are now dealing with this new pump storage hydropower project um, and building coalitions in many of the same ways um, to try and stop what they see as kind of just the latest threat to water resources in that region. So that's that stood out to us as well. So you have both mentioned that uh, that what you've uh, talked about today was sort of the first step. And what's the next step? What is, do you have an upcoming deadline or you know application or something that's pending? What will you do next? This is Meg. So this fall, Sophia and I um, worked hard and we've gotten some initial proposals into both the Sloan Foundation and the Mellon Foundation. Um, and so we're waiting to hear back on how those uh, those applications are going. In coming months, we're doing a few things. One thing that we're doing right now is we're working with a number of tribal councils from tribes that are um, located um, in the areas of some of this green transition development to work with tribal councils to um, find uh, tribal authorization for the research. And so we're working on that right now because it's just so important to make sure that tribes are um, feel comfortable with us doing research in the places. It's important for us to be able to get tribal authorization 
um, to be able to do this research with tribal members and also thinking about what it means to make sure that we're um, in touch with tribes about the research that we're doing and making sure that they have the ability to also look over findings if they feel like that's appropriate. So we're working on that right now. Um, we're also in conversation with tribal partners about potentially putting together some tribal forums. One would be in California, one would be in Nevada. Those would be led by some of our advisory board members who are themselves um, tribally affiliated, and those would be nation-to-nation -nation dialogues about the green transition. So we're in conversation about that part of the project. And then looking forward, Sophia and I are also planning on just continuing to write more proposals and trying to bring more resources to bear on this important project. So in coming months, we plan on submitting to the National Science Foundation and also just looking to different funds that sort of come up over time and making sure that we're really trying to do the fundraising that we need to do to bring in the team that is going to be required to make this project happen. Meg Mills-Navoa directs the Climate Futures Lab at UC Berkeley, and Sophia Borges is an assistant professor and researcher at Boise State University. Meg, Sophia, thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. And that was Nevada Public Radio's Heidi Kaiser.